welcome to the next in the series of podcasts from Park Lane Plowden Chambers. Today we're joined by Derek Winter, who is the Deputy Chief Coroner for England and Wales and also the Senior Coroner for the City of Sunderland. I'm Leila Ben-Yunis and I'm a barrister at Park Lane Plowden Chambers and Head of the Inquest and Inquiries team. And I also sit as an Assistant Coroner for the area of Gateshead and South Tyneside. Today we're going to discuss the role of the coroner, the role of the coroner's service and following a recent inquest grandstand event that we held, which Derek kindly spoke at, we're going to deal with some questions that were raised by our audience and deal with the topics and the interesting points that were made. We're going to look at the coroner's investigation and the inquest and also the role of lawyers in the coronial process. So to begin, I think our listeners will know that a coroner doesn't investigate every death, but can you indicate what triggers an investigation by a coroner when we become involved? Before the Act came into force in 2013, many coroner areas had their own reporting criteria. And one of the first jobs that I undertook as Deputy Chief Coroner was to help formulate the notification of deaths regulations which came into force in 2019 and the purpose was to ensure that all death reporting was consistent throughout the country so if you were for example a doctor in Newcastle and you moved to Plymouth the same rules of engagement would apply and the Coroners and Justice Act section 1 sets out in quite precise terms the nature of the referrals to be made to the coroner and how the coroner's duty to investigate is triggered. And that duty to investigate is triggered when the coroner has reason to suspect that somebody has died a violent or a natural death where the cause of death is not known, or if the deceased died while in custody or in state detention. So that's any death in custody or state detention, even if it's natural. But essentially, natural deaths now have oversight by the Medical Examiner Service, which is being rolled out from dealing with hospital deaths to community deaths in the coming months and years. So a medical examiner will look at a natural death, make sure that the cause of death is acceptable, that the family have no concerns about somebody's care or the cause of death. The medical records will be checked and if everything is in order, the medical examiner will approve the medical certificate as to the cause of a natural death being progressed to registration of that death. So it means that every death has a triage process. The natural deaths go down the route of medical examiner scrutiny, but those deaths which are unnatural or the cause of death is not known or people who die in state detention are referred to the coroner. Now, the coroner can make preliminary inquiries about those referrals, and if the death turns out to be natural after all, the coroner can then discontinue the investigation. But if the death after all is unnatural, or if somebody has died in state detention, then there will be an inquest. And to demonstrate that triaging of those deaths I would suggest that your listeners look to the Ministry of Justice website and search against coroner statistics, which are produced every year, usually in May, 
and you can see the number of deaths that were registered in England and Wales and how less than half of them went to coroners and only about 30 odd thousand of the cases referred went to inquest and and that's because the coroner is not just doing court work the coroner is uh, doing back office investigations to see if the death warrants an inquest hearing so when your listeners if they are practicing lawyers see the coroner somewhat uh, hassled at a lunchtime it's because they've left court and there's probably a queue of coroner's officers waiting to greet them to ask them for further directions about the death preliminary inquiries or investigations everything is now electronic so death reports come in through a portal in most coroner jurisdictions and that's in line with the notification of deaths regulations which required electronic reporting so gone are the days where a doctor will simply telephone that death report to the coroner and everyone's very clear about what the doctor is then saying. I think as lawyers we've perhaps mistaken the role of the coroner to only include inquests because that's where we come involved that's when we have the direct experience so what goes on effectively behind the scenes or in the back office or in respect of the investigation process from the start um, is particularly important and I think certainly when I started sitting um, I realised the importance and also the work involved um, in the um, efforts prior to a case getting ready for inquest or even for a pre-inquest review. So moving on to speak a little bit about the role of lawyers in the coronial process. Listeners will know that there is no requirement for participants in the process to have legal representation. But if they do, what do you think um, the role that lawyers can play can be in this process for us? Not every inquest does involve uh, the presence of a, a lawyer. Uh, inevitably, organisations must be represented through someone because of their organisational status. And uh, many families cannot afford legal representation. Uh, ultimately, this is an inquisitorial jurisdiction. It's not adversarial. It's a fact-finding inquiry by the coroner who will look at who the person was who's died, when they died, where they died, and how they came about their death, and to record certain particulars to enable the death certificate to be issued. So the coroner is in charge of this inquiry and is assisted by the interested persons, there being no parties or case to be advanced. But inevitably, as I've said, there will be lawyers for an organisation, for a health trust. And a part of the role of the coroner is to manage the expectations of the participants and in advance of any inquest where we we expect lawyers to appear and the family are not represented we will tell families so that they don't come into court and feel that they might be at some sort of disadvantage and that the coroner is there to tease out the facts of the case and to ask relevant questions so we manage family expectations. Everybody gets support from the coroner's court support service. Uh, in my view, uh, lawyers can be very, very helpful, uh, even if the family are not represented. Uh, sometimes the family may have representation, perhaps if there's been a death in state detention or custody. And uh, again, those experienced lawyers bring a, uh, their own experiences to bear as to what coroners can do and can't do and some lawyers will 
assist the family within appropriate constraints. They'll bring along copies of cases uh, for families. They might help turn up the page in the bundle if necessary. But I, I think a good lawyer can bring a, an advantage to a good hearing. And I think the process is about not just the outcome, but everybody understanding the reasons for the outcome. Uh, it's very easy to tell people what has happened, but I think a coroner should always explain those reasons. And the lawyers can be a part of that process. Inevitably, uh, there are occasions where difficult, robust questions have to be put to a witness. And I think every coroner understands that. But the manner in which the question is put, and not for repeat questions to be put time and time again is, is not appropriate, uh, nor is it appropriate for any lawyer to relentlessly go over old ground which has been covered. That's not going to be helpful. Uh, we don't have cross-examination in inquest courts. Uh, the lawyers, the family uh, can ask questions which are relevant to the fact-finding exercise we have to undertake, which are appropriate. As part of my role as Deputy Chief Coroner, I also developed, with the help of others, the Inquest Toolkit. And this appears on the website of all of the lawyers' regulators. And it sets out the competences that are expected. Uh, there are a series of films from the Chief Coroner, myself, uh, some experienced lawyers involved with the inquest process, setting out how best to deal with advocacy in the coroner's court. And I would like to think that it has gone somewhere to recalibrate uh, the tone of inquests. Uh, but generally, my experience is I have no problem with lawyers in, in my court, and it's about everybody understanding the rules of engagement and what can be done and what can't be done. It's no different to any other court other than this is an, an inquiry. We're not adversarial with parties. My experience is certainly that in lengthy cases, lawyers can be particularly helpful at identifying issues, raising points, preempting matters, and also in the pre-inquest review process as well, when um, a coroner submits an agenda in advance, inviting submissions on points. Um, written submissions can often be really helpful, um, also setting out where there is agreement, where there isn't going to be controversy. But if there are going to be um, arguments raised about points, it's, it's really quite useful that the lawyers have an opportunity to do that in advance. And then obviously the coroner is also aware in advance, um, particularly if families are not represented so that they know which areas might require some more detailed explanation. Um, in order for a family to fully participate. The benefit of a pre-inquest review is to concentrate everyone's attention on the scope of the inquest that the coroner will set. And my practice, and I suspect every other coroner's practice, is to set out, as you rightly said, uh, an agenda detailing who are the interested persons, timetabling statements, not necessarily sequentially because facts are going to remain facts it doesn't matter what other people say but but ultimately to identify the scope deal with matters such as whether article 2 the right to life is engaged all important matters whether we need a jury uh, whether um, there are any missing statements if there's any missing disclosure 
One of the things that I've started to do with um, clinical type inquests is to ask everybody what page numbers of the medical records are going to be referred to so that we do not have 10 lever arch files in court for every interested person and that we focus our attention in advance, in good time, as to what documents we are going to produce and rely upon. And if I anticipate, having reviewed papers, that I think there is a particular issue which is going to emerge, then I will express a provisional view subject to submissions on that point, rather than expecting the lawyers to raise every matter and then I have to give a ruling. And very often that focuses everybody's attention or it flushes out new matters for everybody to think about. And even if the families are not represented and perhaps they've expressed some concerns about a relative's medical treatment, I ask them in advance to set out those concerns in writing so that we can make sure there are no issues that we're not in a position to tackle because there's nothing worse than getting to a hearing and then adjourning. And the, the lawyers are an integral part of ensuring that when we, we get to the hearing that it proceeds to conclusion without further adjournment. We've talked quite a lot about the role of lawyers now, but particularly the bereaved and the aim of the service to ensure that the bereaved remain um, at the heart of the coronial process. What One matter I wanted to raise and seek your views on was the use of pen portrait material, which um, was published by the chief coroner. Certainly as counsel and also as coroner, I often um, make the point that that's something I will assist with, either as counsel in trying to prepare a document or take the views of family members, but equally for families that are not represented, if they want an opportunity to prepare something which I will read. Um, and I think that is a, a really useful tool. Is, is there anything else that you could suggest or uh, point to that tries to, to focus the, this intention to keep the bereaved at the heart? I think as as lawyers, as coroner, we're very familiar with the inquest courtroom and all of the rules of engagement that go with it. For families, this is a, a totally new experience. And it's a state-imposed experience because of the, the legal system. And they're naturally going to be very apprehensive. We will certainly try and support the bereaved as best as we can. Now, that does not mean to the exclusion of all others, because if you are a motorist or a doctor accused of having done something or that your conduct may be called into question, then you should have every courtesy extended to you by the coroner's court. But the family, for example, are at the heart of the process because it is their loss. And the guidance from the chief coroner about pen portraits anticipated how coroners might approach pen portraits, tributes to the deceased in, in, in a variety of settings because sometimes the inquest court is just the coroner and the family at a very short hearing where documents are admitted without any contention whatsoever. I like to see the pen portrait in advance so I know what is being said and it should not be too lengthy. I have to remind myself and also a jury that the pen portrait is not evidence. Some families uh, bring along photographs and I'm quite comfortable with a, a family showing me a photograph. That's fine. Some families just want to tell me something about their loved one um, during the course of a hearing. They may do that without any prompting whatsoever. 
it does personalise the inquest in an appropriate way if it's handled sensitively. Uh, but as I've mentioned, this is not evidence and particularly with a jury, some caution is, is needed to make sure that the jury understand that point. You've talked already about the requirement to manage expectations, both from the coroner and potentially also um, perhaps from the lawyers that are involved. Um, are there any limits uh, that need to be set as boundaries at the outset on a, a coroner's investigation? I think it is important that families understand what the scope of the inquest is, what the coroner can do, what the coroner can't do, the inquisitorial nature of the jurisdiction. I think most lawyers do understand that, even people starting their journey uh, as lawyers within the inquest world. Uh, and there's lots of guidance out there about making sure that lawyers and interested persons understand their obligations. And there is soon to be a bench book, uh, which will be publicly accessible in the same way as other courts have a bench book. But for example, a lawyer can help enormously around disclosure. Uh, disclosure is a mammoth exercise uh, for any coroner's team to undertake. I quite like to use sometimes a disclosure declaration that everything has been provided to me and that there's nothing further to be discovered because there's nothing worse than getting to a hearing and some document that nobody else has seen is then produced and then there may have to be a short adjournment or even a relisting of the case. So it's important that everybody participates and assists the court. I think that's the fundamental point that's the difference with a lot of other sets of proceedings. Nobody's um, advocating a case here. We're trying to get to the truth within what the law provides and coroners have to be careful not to stray into areas that uh, they, they shouldn't comment upon. And I think the Chief Coroner's Guidance um, 44, um, you touched on the disclosure requirements. Um, that sets out both requirements for those providing disclosure, but also those that are expecting or wanting to obtain disclosure as well. And time limits is suggested as a, as a good way to try and manage and keep the progress of a case as well. Yes, I, I think if a coroner says they want disclosure by the 30th of a month at midday, then people should um, comply. When when I was in practice as a family lawyer, we had a district judge who always used to chastise those who did not comply by telling us or reminding us that um, they were not targets. These are court-led directions from a coroner that need to be respected. And certainly in the family court, I, I recall Lord Justice Mumby, um reminding everybody of the need to comply with time limits. And if you can't comply with a time limit, tell the coroner in advance and the reason for the delay. There may be a holiday, there may be sickness, and the, the matter can be rescheduled. But if a time limit is not complied with, coroners don't appreciate that. And certainly families who will diarise these dates will possibly take it as a slight on them and the process and a matter of disrespect. So I, I think the disclosure guidance is important and it should be complied with in its entirety. Moving on just to understand other investigations that might either run alongside or perhaps, um, is it ever the case that the, an investigation would be instead of a coroner's own investigation? 
other investigations do take place which have an impact on the inquest process. The the obvious one is if there's a homicide offence being prosecuted by the police and Crown Prosecution Service. Um, coroners will open the inquest and then it will be adjourned off, essentially suspended, pending the outcome of the Crown Court proceedings. And then depending upon whether there are further things to be investigated, coroners may or may not then continue with the inquest process. And there's guidance now from the chief coroner on how a coroner should approach the uh, decision-making on resumptions. But there's a raft of other concurrent investigations which the coroner may wait for. And that includes the hospital's own inquiries, for example, the health and safety executive, the independent office for police conduct, there may be mental health reports, social services reports, a report from the prison and probation ombudsman if there's a death in prison. Coroners may have to wait for a Ministry of Defence report if there's been a military death. And of course, there are the investigation branches with air, healthcare, rail and a, a raft of other investigations, possibly by the Care Quality Commission, that the, the coroner will stand back and ideally wait for because there would be nothing worse than the coroner embarking upon their own inquest if then another organisation discovered something that the coroner had not discovered. Your listeners may already know that coroners should, where possible, hold their inquest within six months of the of the death. And any case which is over 12 months old, the coroner must report that matter to the chief coroner every year when we do that particular return and these dates are always in a coroner's mind as to trying to keep matters moving along. Delay of course can be the enemy of justice but many years ago uh, coroners dealt with inquests within weeks or days of a death and of course there's got to be proper inquiry and investigation but we really must all remember to get the inquest timetabled to bring it to a conclusion because until the inquest's heard the family can't have the final death certificate they only get an interim death certificate the chief coroner's guidance certainly seemed to respond imminently and um quickly to the challenges of the pandemic um guidance was issued almost straight away about the provision um for remote attendance uh, remote participation my own experience was that I was able to represent an injured person um, in a jury inquest which took place with all legal representatives and witnesses attending remotely um, over a three-week period with 19 witnesses with only the coroner and the jury in person. And despite the challenges that perhaps can be uh, initially foreseen with technological difficulties, uh, things did run smoothly. So I think my experience was that the, the challenge was there and it was certainly met and with particular guidance from the Office of the Chief Coroner as to how things should progress as well. What I would say about that is there was a lot of activity in the Chief Coroner's office. The Chief Coroner does not have a vast number of staff, but those members of staff and the other Deputy uh, Chief Coroner, Coroner Judge Alexia Duran, we met sometimes daily to refine guidance as the pandemic was progressing through the country and as 
the technology was developing. And I, I think if we look at the how slick Teams and Zoom can be now as to where we all started from in those early days, it was a very steep learning curve for everyone. The latest guidance that we've had from the chief coroner has been in respect of stillbirths. Um, that was only published recently. Are you able to divulge what we can expect imminently um, in terms of latest guidance, please? I think it's always difficult to say what will emerge from the chief coroner's office, but um, this, the stillbirth guidance, uh, as you rightly say, has just, just been issued. That's now on the chief coroner's website. There is some uh, guidance underway on organ donation because that needs to be uh, refreshed. The chief coroner's team, and in particular the legal advisor, is doing a, a bit of a spring clean on all of the the guidance notes to make sure that they are up to date. The big challenge on the guidance notes was around the case of Morn and the impact on suicide and unlawful killing conclusions. The guidances do take a long time to develop. The bench book is well underway and as I've said I hope it will be published in May or June time and that will be a document that can be updated online like all other documents are. There's Maguire in the Supreme Court which I think judgment is reserved on and has yet to be published and we've just had decisions around Galbraith Plus and whether there is a plus and we've had some rulings around uh, prevent future death reports and now really it comes down to the the view of the coroner and th there's no need for submissions to be made on the on the point necessarily but ultimately I think coroners are always in the news aren't they either in the legal news or on the television news about important inquests and developments going on in, in everyone's community. And for our listeners um, looking for guidance and the resources, I think the best starting point would go to the Chief Coroner's website where all of the law sheets uh, and the guidance notes are published. And there's also a section on there that has the cases or the relevant cases for particular years. So that really is uh, perhaps the best resource, I would say, um, for those practicing in the area, just to make sure that they're fully abreast of the developments. Yes, and there is a Coroner Society website which has some useful information on the public side, particularly contact details for coroners, officers and courts, and there are other useful websites on on, on a variety of links to that um, Coroner Society website, so the Coroner's Court Support Service, there are links to the regulator's toolkits, uh, the Ministry of Justice have a section on coroners, particularly statistics. If your listeners were interested, they can look at a particular area's uh, statistics in terms of the number of deaths that were reported to that area, how many inquests took place, how many juries there were. There are about 500 jury inquests every year, so not many jury inquests out of the 30-odd thousand inquests that I mentioned earlier, but there is a raft of information uh, out there for people to, um, to research. Derek, thank you very much. We've covered all of the topics and particularly the points that were raised at our latest grandstand event and hopefully the guidance that's going to be updated in due course and particularly the bench book uh, will be of benefit to our listeners. Thank you very much. Thank you.